So we've been thinking. So we've been thinking. The podcast. What is the teaching machine? And what ideals are hard-coded into the technology we use in classrooms every day? Have you ever considered how the history of ed tech can impact your current practice? In this episode, we explore those ideas and more on the So We've Been Thinking podcast. My name's Audrey Waters. I'm a writer. I, I suppose um, I'm a freelance writer, so my work has appeared in various publications across the web, but I'm probably best known for my website, Hack Education, um, where I write, I think, criticism of education technology. All right. So what have you been thinking about in education lately? Well, currently I'm working on a book. I've been saying I've been working on this book for a long time, um, but I'm actually, I've actually signed a contract, so I'm really actually working on a book uh, called Teaching Machines. And it's the history, it's part of the history of education technology, and it's one that has always really fascinated me. And that's one of the early pre-computer um, machines that uh, psych- educational psychologists uh, built in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s in order to teach and test students. So I've been, I've been following along with this stuff. Um, I think this is what you spoke about to some degree back at one of the EdTech Teacher Summits. Um, I think in our experience in working with schools is there's not like generally this awareness of how far back ed tech goes and what has been happening prior to new tools that people are um, kind of exposed to on a daily basis. So what do you think like a, a typical classroom teacher, maybe even someone who's on the newer end of their, you know, starting their teaching career, like what, what can they learn from understanding what has happened before and this idea of teaching machines? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that understanding uh, history is, is relevant and important in general. I mean, not to sort of repeat the, the Santayana cliche, right, about those of us who don't know history are destined to repeat it. But I, I think it is worth thinking about where, um, where our practices, where our systems, where our institutions, where our tools um, come from and, and why things look like they do, right? So, you know, technology is a human creation um, as are our, you know, as are our institutions and our practices. And so as such, it's not, they aren't natural. And so these things have a design that has a history. They have, um, you know, they, they have a, a legacy that's sort of built into the machine, built into the technology, I mean, to use the, a technical term, sort of hard-coded in some ways, into the machines we use. And I think it's worth thinking about why and, and how. And, you know, I think that, I think because computers in particular have the sort of, we talk a lot about innovation um, as though everything's new, um, but I think it's important to recognize there are so many ways in which we're doing things that actually have um, almost 100 years of history behind them. Audrey, if you've been studying the, the history of educational technology, then maybe something that we could start to talk about as an overall discussion is what, what kind of themes tend to emerge? If you see the way that schools or education is starting to take this technology and adopt it, um, what are some of the commonalities over time? So one of the things that's really fascinating to me is that when I am doing this research, and again, I'm looking, I'm looking primarily at 
sort of very early education psychologists. We have to remember that the field of psychology itself is really a 20th, is a, is a 20th century field. So these are early psychologists and early educational psychologists interested in the mind, um, interested in human behavior. Um, but it's so it's fascinating to see the arguments that we hear today about why why students should use technology were arguments that were being made, um, you know, like I said, uh, about a hundred years ago. Um, they're very familiar. Um, the idea that students should be allowed to move at their own pace. The idea that receiving immediate feedback is is important. Um, the idea that that uh, that teachers should that machines uh, should. It should be used to free up time so that teachers don't have to do sort of uh, rote, uh, rote tasks in the classroom uh, like grading. And so I find it really interesting that th those, that's sort of, that's really the core of the argument for quote, personalized education, which a lot of folks talk about as being like the hot new thing that all of a sudden um, education technologists are talking about. And really it's, much more deeply ingrained, but not just ingrained in the technology, but also um, in the history of, of education, in a, you know, thinking about why is it that um, in that moment in the, in the early 1900s in particular, it was very important to talk about individualization. Um, what was going on in American society, what was going on in the American school system that might have made people think that schools were math, math education, and that we needed to develop practices that were more about the individual. That's a very, it's a very American idea. And it's not just, a, you know, it's not just a technological idea. This is interesting because I'm sensing like, I can't tell if I'm sensing a bit of optimism. It's like, hey, these ideas are 100 years old. Um, and look, we, this, this has been going on for a while, so maybe we're on the right track. Or is this, um, is this pointing to the fact that not much progress has been made? So if, we're if, if it's trendy to talk about personalized instruction, and I know um, some of the work, too, is around this idea of like immediate feedback for the purpose of conditioning, for the purpose of... Right. So like, are you, are you thinking optimistically? Are you th like, I know some of the work can be a bit cynical, which is honestly why we want you here. We want, you here. <laughs> but like, what is your perspective now with this, this knowledge of like, we have a number of years behind us already. So now what? I mean, I, I think that, you know, looking at, I mean, I, I think that it's it sort of in some ways, sort of neither of those. I mean, I think it's, I think it is important to know where these ideas come from. Um, and one of the things that I often, that I find um, really troubling is, I think it's sort of intertwined with um, the way in which technology or digital technology companies, new digital technology companies have a very, uh, seem to encourage a kind of ahistoricism that has permeated a lot of what they do. In fact, that, I think that's part of their rationale, this idea that they're going to enter into new spaces, new spaces that, have, that they identify as problems or failures, and that they're going to, thanks to their engineering know-how, uh, provide a technological solution to, to whatever problems they've identified. Um, and that's sort of, I mean, the, the hubris is 
um, is deeply offensive. But I think it's also, um, it's, I mean, it's quite ludicrous that, that one would step into a field that in which, you know, that has such a long history. I mean, and I don't, again, I don't just mean, mean the, the, the history of education psychology, the, the history of public education um, as an, as an institution, the history of teaching as a profession. These are, these are very old. Um, we've, uh, we've, we've, um, you know, we've been doing this for a, a while now, for, for better, for worse. Um, and so this idea that one does not have to have any kind of knowledge of the field in order to come in and disrupt it is to me, I think, uh, quite, destruct, quite destructive. And so I think, it's, I think it's worth thinking about where these things come from. And I think, you know, you, you alluded to the behaviorism. I, it's, again, one of the, probably one of the best known people, um, characters in my book is, is B.F. Skinner, who... I, I'll make the argument is probably the most important psychologist of, of the 20th century. Um, I think maybe others would go with Freud, but I'll go with B.F. Skinner. Um, and he really shaped both overtly and then I think um, much more subtly the way in which we think about um, behavior and the way in which we think about conditioning and the way in which we've developed technologies that are that do um, that have conditioned us to behave in, in certain ways, and it's not just. I mean, certainly, it's it's not just in the classroom. It's not just the kinds of things that we expect students to do as they progress through through a particular lesson. I mean, this is this is very much the idea of of um, of our phone vibrating every time there's a notification, there's the, the idea of actually of a push notification in which you get a vibration or a sound or a little red circle on your phone is, is very much, a, is very much part of this conditioning that, that Skinner was really interested in and is, was part and parcel of what he saw as being a core, a core benefit of, of the teaching machine. Audrey, I'm, you know, what I really want to hear is like, I, what I really want to do is just read your whole book because I'm really fascinated <laughs> with this topic ever since I heard your, your presentation at the summit. Um, you know, when you study a whole course of a subject like this, um, is there anything that, any time that stands out where like a teaching machine or technology arrived and you feel like its implementation was understood and implemented in a way that was like, wow, that's, that's really a shining example for us to look at. And then maybe, I don't know how long um, the, the depth of that, is but then when is a time that's like a, a, the pinnacle of how it shouldn't be perhaps yeah i mean i think that uh you know the sort of the the per, the prescriptive stuff is is you know i mean i'm i think i'm i'm, I'm known for have i mean i have very strong opinions about um what you know what's uh what's a good idea and what's a, a dangerous idea in sure. education technology i mean i think i'm i'm known for that and i think that um for for this book, I really want to just I want to be able to look at the history and and not not that I don't have strong opinions. I just think that there's a lot of history that we've that doesn't really get talked about. And partially, I think it's because the way in which we tell stories today is we're so excited to get to the story about the computer, and we're so excited to get to the story about the personal computer again because it fits so neatly into our beliefs about how we should individualize the world. 
for, for each of us that I think that we, that we rush through some of this other stuff. I mean, I'm part of my book is, is going to be looking at the work that the military did, uh, the military and businesses adopted teaching machines in ways that schools, schools never really did. Um, and the military was really interested in, um, in building teaching machines. And, you know, this of course all happens around Sputnik, um, in which, both the argument that the American school system was failing really um, became very loud and a lot of money was put into science and math education and foreign language education. But there was also a lot of emphasis put into building things so that people could teach themselves. And so I think that, again, that it's important to think about where do these ideas of autodidacts and technology, which is deeply intertwined, I think, with the culture that's building um, computers for us today is, is very much praises the individual, praises the autodidact, sees machines as being something so that you learn alone um, rather than a kind of a, a communal, cooperative um, learning experience. Even though I think, I mean, even though I think sometimes you hear people talk about machines being able to sort of do do things in a Socratic way. Um, a lot of these a lot of these machines really do privilege the individual. And you know, as we move into a world that is um, that is increasingly seems to be um, driven by algorithms and algorithms that are supposed to tune the world to to each of us individually. I think there's a lot to think about. What you know, where where do what's the you know what are the origins of of some of these values and what are the origins uh, for the people who are of these values and the people who are building these technologies and have built these technologies today. And again, how does that get hard coded? How does that get hard coded in there? It seems like, is there a sense, like you've alluded to this, the idea of like there's a history and there's beliefs and values that are hard coded into the educational technology or the resources that we're using. So what is the what is the practicing classroom teacher um, to do in terms of like evaluating should or should I not be using this tool um, who, who might not have the time to do this sort of work or if they're in the position where their district has decided top down like we're implementing a platform that is collecting data and we should potentially be skeptical of but um, it's going to make your life super efficient and easier. And like you said, or alluded to earlier, it'll free you up to do other yeah. tasks. So like, do you have advice for the, um, not that any teacher is average, but just the A classroom teacher who is strapped for time to begin with and then is in a really tough spot? I mean, I think one of the things to remember is that the, that the promise of automation, like the promise of automation in order to make things easier has always fallen a little flat. Like, and again, it's important to think about, I think this, this is why the history is really interesting to me. Um, the fifties the and post-war America was a time in which a lot of automation was proposed for the home. Um, in order to make things easier for, uh, for the housewife, again, it's all that it's co it's coded and, and, um, and, and gendered and race and class in certain in certain ways, then um, I think that that's important to think about how we how these men and they were almost exclusively men, white men, building technologies that they thought were going to 
automate the classroom in a very similar way that they were going to automate the kitchen, right? Um, and the fact that it's sort of primarily white women that they were imagining making quote unquote life easier for. But these, the, the household appliances, the, the dishwasher, for example, the washing machine, they, they don't necessarily free up a lot of time. Um, they just create different kinds of tasks and, and one spends time maintaining the machine um, and they kind of, they, they rearrange labor. And I think that, you know, the, the promise that, for example, the promise of, of new technologies that are going to make things more efficient, I think many educators that I've talked to find themselves um, spending a lot of time um, coding data, doing data entry. Um, and so instead of sort of it being more efficient, they're spending, they're spending a lot of time feeding these machines, just like you have to load and unload the dishwasher. I mean, sure, it seems like magic happens and you're not actually with your up to your elbows in soapy water, but the dishwasher doesn't necessarily <laughs> make doing dishes a time-saving um, enterprise. And I think that those are the things to, to, to think about. I mean, the other thing I would ask, you know, ask teachers to think about is, um, you know, this is why the connection to behaviorism and Skinner are important. Skinner, Skinner was very famous for his work with, with pigeons. Um, he, he did, he trained pigeons um, and he saw, he saw no difference really in training pigeons and training rats and, and training children. Um, he thought it was a very similar process. And I think, um, not to sort of tout human exceptionalism, but I would like to think that when in the classroom that children, uh, students of all ages actually aren't pigeons, um, they are free-thinking individuals uh, with free will. Skinner did not believe in free will, right? Um, and so I think that, you know, what are, what are we, what are we sort of training students to do? Um, are there places in which we sort of have them on sort of deterministic paths? Um, how are we, uh, you know, sort of what are, how are the software that we're using sort of Pavlovian? It, it, again, uh, to sort of making, making students sort of salivate over over certain kinds of rewards or the promise of certain kinds of rewards and is that is that is that how we want to think about education is education about training pigeons or is education about cultivating uh curiosity and agency and and i think a, a very different kind of idea of of um students as, as well, <laughs> students as, as humans um, with curiosity and, and capacity rather than as, as, a, as an, a lab animal. But so there's also a machine, a massive machine, behind um, promoting that type of um, educational experience with the use of technology to make it seem like, like this is super innovative. And right. the, the time saved, like, so the, like you, I love the idea that, I mean, I'm up to my elbows and dishes all the time, but I love the idea that, you know, don't be um, fooled that the work, that the work is gone. The work is just different. Yeah. Yeah. 
but what so now like i keep thinking about okay um like sean and i were both history teachers and new tools emerged all the time and i was always of the personality to just jump on board and try it and see if it was going to be beneficial for me or my students and might it save time might it allow me to provide more feedback but there's but now i feel like there's this increased kind of marketing campaign that all things that can be automated and made to be done faster with a machine should be done that way within there's countless tools to get this done. Um, so I feel like uh, in many ways, like it's even harder now to get out of that cycle. So I think that, I mean, I think that this is what is so insidious about these technologies, right? Like one of the things that always makes me chuckle about, about not just the way in which these sort of education psychologists in the twenties and thirties were saying, well, you know, it's marvelous. Like, I, I just marvel at the idea that around that time, around World War One in particular, standardized testing really took off in schools. We again, we think of this as a George W. Bush issue, but really, this was an early 20th century education psychology. Let's measure and test the children. Thing is again about a, a hundred years old. Um, the multiple choice test has its roots around around that same time. In order to again, in order to make assessment more efficient make it more standardized, make it more objective, et cetera. And so the idea that like suddenly students were spending all this time taking tests and teachers were spending a ton of time grading tests. And so the solution is mechanize the assessment. But strangely to me, the solution is never, how about we don't spend all this time making students take tests, right? So we, like we, we, so instead of saying like, wow, we're asking students to spend their time doing a lot of really stupid crap, like we're, like, we're just making the grading of worksheet <laughs> faster. Like, why are we asking, like with the, the, to me that never seems to be like, we never seem to say like, why are we asking, I, I, I get it. Like it's, it's really annoying to have to grade stupid assignments. So why wouldn't you want a robot to grade the stupid assignments? But to me, the question is like, why are we, why are we doing stupid assignments? Right, like let's like, <laughs> like how about we don't make students do dumb tasks? Super, super novel thought, right there. <laughs> you know, there's, I know. There's two things that popped into my head when you were talking right there, just from a personal experience. You're talking about how we're waiting for this next piece of technology that is going to like standardize something that we do, and um, I'm going to try to be vague, but. So I was at a major educational technology conference this summer, and there was this like social media um, presence saying that a particular company was going to announce some big, huge thing and it was going to change education. And people were all excited and I, I, I acknowledge I was caught up in this. And then when that final announcement finally came out, I was like, that's it? That, like, that's it. This is this great thing that's going to happen. But yet I felt that people around me were like, oh my gosh, I have to try this. And basically what it was is that they had eliminated the freedom for students that now teachers had control. And I yeah. was like, that that's not it that's that's not what i'm here for to deny them the ability to move like oh we've locked them into this room essentially right um another similar experience like that was i was at a conference working with a school super passionate teachers and a teacher was like well how am i supposed to use this technology to find out how the students did during class and they were we're, we're trying to overcome this dilemma of using this tool and i just turned to them and said well what do you just have them raise their hand and do like fist of five, one through five. How do you understand it? And they said they couldn't because the school required that they show evidence that they had used some form of formative assessment and you can't take evidence of raising hands. So I said, take a picture. And, and even then, 
this idea was that like we have to move away from what this this older idea and that the only path forward is more technology um, to to do these things that we're trying to do. And I kind of felt like in that moment, um, it kind of flashed through my head as you were talking about maybe like Pavlovian software or or I don't know, like we're we're caught up in this movement. I think we're um, caught up in, the, and I think that you know, I, I think that it, it's really challenging. And I think that that's why I like I think it's important for us to think about not just when we talk about technology, to not just talk about like the product or the tool. Like we have to look about, look at these things, how they exist within practices and pre-existing practices and how they exist in institutions. And, and you know, I think that, the, unfortunately, I think that a lot of traditional education is very, and traditional educational institutions and practices is very reliant on compliance and it's very reliant on surveillance, right? And so if we think about what are the dials that we're going to turn and what are the technologies that we're going to implement to make those things more efficient, right? To make students more compliant more quickly and to make surveillance more pervasive, um, like that's, that's really, in some ways, what we're spending a lot of time doing. And we can talk about that there are other, you know, we can sort of, we can sort of fluff up the benefits of the, like perhaps the side benefits of using these tools, but a lot of them are really streamlining compliance and surveillance. And so getting away from technology, from those technologies isn't just a matter of like using a different brand, right? Like, you actually have to fundamentally rethink the culture and values of our institutions and we have to rethink our practices um, in order to challenge that and that's you know that's a that's a harder that's a harder sell than saying like you know we're looking for a new learning management system I think that what you said about compliance and surveillance really resonates because of the experiences I've had when you're trying to share new tools with schools and um, if a lot of times they really want to see that they can get evidence of compliance and, and, and have a measure of surveillance and that simply having a tool that a, a student can use independently that they can't look at, um, it, it scares them. It, it's, it's very, I don't know, upsetting to them that that could be the case. Yeah, and I think that they, you know, and this all, I mean, again, like, these are larger cultural issues, too. This isn't something that's just happening within schools, right? This is a larger this is a much broader cultural issue with the technologies that we're adopting in our, in our professional lives. I mean, for teachers, professional lives at school, but like in our work lives and in our personal lives. Um, and and these ideas of behaviorism are shot through almost all these technologies and increasingly the surveillance, the surveillance is as well. Um, so if we have a lot to, you know, we have a lot, I think, to, to, to really to, to work on, um, but it's not just a matter of fiddling the dials with the technology. It's a deeper, it's a much, much deeper social political issue. You're, you're giving us fantastic sound bites, by the way. We will pull like the most <laughs> exceptional ones, like fiddling the dials, um, subversive, I think, or what maybe was used earlier, which is fantastic. Um, this makes me think of some of the work you've written about of the need for students to own their own domain. And I wondered yeah. how, if you could speak to that with regards to the idea of like surveillance and maybe um, exposing students to information that's being 
um, collected in some capacity? And then um, what can we do around? And then maybe if you can even expand on that a bit, like, do we mean students owning their own domain to build a website or like, what, what do you mean by that? And then what does that look like in at scale in, in schools? Yeah, I mean, I think that <laughs> it's, it's so strange to say these things now. Um, it, you know, I feel like a couple of years ago when I would make the argument that maybe social media wasn't such a great thing um, and that, that, that there were issues with the ways in which our personal data um, and our, you know, even our status updates were being wielded, decontextualized, and, and weaponized, um, uh, not just by the companies that are sort of selling advertising against it, but by other people that seem that want to do us harm. And now I'm like, yeah, uh, I don't mean to break it to you, but like if you, in case you haven't noticed, like Facebook and Twitter don't seem to be very good things for democracy. <laughs> and so I think that, you know, I think that um, what does it mean to, to help students understand what's happening to their, to their information and, you know, what's happening to their, to their work? Uh, we, you know, we use the word homework and schoolwork, but we don't often, and, you know, again, coming back to this idea of labor-saving devices, we don't often really help students understand the, um, what they're doing and the value of the value of their work as their as sort of as a as real scholarship um, as import as important creative intellectual work um, and what does it mean to have another company be able to lay claim to your work um, what does it mean to have another company lay claim to the, the biometric data around the clicks you make on on your computer. Um, so I think it's important to help students think about the ways in which um, surveillance is happening. And I think that students are increasingly aware of this. Um, I think that they, they do understand and devise ways in which they try to resist, um, resist having their lives surveilled um, by both by, by parents and, and by teachers. Um, and by companies as well. But I think it's important to talk frankly though with students about what that looks like in a school setting. Like what is the data that's, what is the data that, that, um, that the school is collecting about you and, and what counts, you know, this, I think that these are important conversations just to have to help develop sort of critical citizenship, um, a critical digital literacy uh, for students. I'm a, I'm a proponent of students being able to own their own domain, um, can have, a, have a website that, that they control, um, because I think it gives them some technical skills. I think that, um, I think that that's worthwhile. And I, help, I think it helps them understand that the work that they do to think through what does it mean to share your work? What does it mean to have your work be public? Uh, what does it mean to be able to decide whether or not you want someone to be able to see your work? What does it mean to be able to showcase your growth and development um, as, a, as a scholar? Uh, I think that you know, students, again, that what I said about students doing stupid work, like students have capacity to be able to do um, important scholar to make important scholarly contributions 
and I, and I don't just mean college students. I think I think students of all ages can make important scholarly contributions. And so, um, to think of oneself as being part of a part of a web of of scholars is is powerful. And that was the original idea of the World Wide Web. Um, unfortunately, um, someone came up with the idea of um, uh, advertising, <laughs> and Google uh, kind of it all kind of went went to hell. But um, <laughs> we, we lost our way a bit. Do you, think, do you I, think we've lost our way? I think we have lost our way. I think that the advertising, I think that the advertising has really, um, digital advertising has really, has really skewed, um, skewed the direction that, that, that things are going. Um, but I also think, I mean, I don't want to have this sort of nostalgia for this perfect moment. Uh, it, 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 again, this is why the history is important. Like, I don't want to say that there was this beautiful moment in the nineties when, when, um, when, you know, the, when the web came into creation and, and it was wonderful. I think that again, you know, where do computers come from? They're, they are military technologies, right? These are, um, the, they, are, they are sort of bound up in, um, in a pretty fraught history that's worth thinking about. And so when, you know, the fact that Google is able to build like the largest sort of advertising sys system that the world has ever seen, and it's also conveniently for, for countries around the world, the most powerful surveillance system the world has ever seen. I think that we, I think we have a lot to, we have a lot to think about in terms of what, what this, what this looks like and what this looks like uh, for the future of information and um, the future of knowledge building and knowledge sharing. And I think that's what school is an important part of, of not just sort of, taking in the knowledge that other people want you to say that you need to accumulate by the time you graduate from high school. But I think it's about um, thinking about the future of creating knowledge too. I think you've pointed out, I mean, there's this dichotomy that I keep seeing in what you're talking about. Like you're talking about this idea of digital literacy and a, a website that's going to showcase all of the creative work that a student is going to do and to highlight their their growth as a scholar, right? And then to put that scholarship out there for the world to consume. And that part is so powerful and positive. I, I have some student work that's been out in the world and several hundred thousand people have viewed this work. That's an incredible opportunity for a student. But then something you said earlier is that there's an algorithm out there. And once you're in that algorithm, the algorithm feeds who you are. And sometimes I wonder if the, the algorithm feeding who you are is doing so at the expense of who you could become because it's uh -huh. these ideas. Yeah, I think that that's, I mean, I think that these are all such important philosophical questions that we should grapple with. And that honestly, I think are worth, I think that students have the capacity to grapple with as well. I mean, the, you know, the, I, 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 um, I just had a birthday. I, uh, the week before my birthday, the eye doctor told me I needed bifocals. So, you know, I think, and then I think I've complained on social media enough times about needing bifocals that now I'm definitely getting like old lady ads. Um, <laughs> in, in all of the that I use. And I, and I think, but I think that, you know, that what does, so, and I think that, you know, that's, that's not a, a but maybe that's a 
big deal or not. It depends on how I feel every day about that. But I think that, you know, I think that this is, this is incredibly important and it isn't just about, um, you know, whether or not I decide to buy sensible shoes and get ads for sensible shoes. I mean, this, when we think about the ways in which, again, algorithms um, dictate things like our credit score, right? Algorithms um, dictate what people find when they search for us. Not just, you know, uh, yeah. the algorithms, that the, they dictate what information we can find. The algorithms are going to dictate whether or not your job application gets past the sort of AI hurdle before a human resources person sees it or same thing goes for college applications. Uh, these are it, important. If, if, a, if an algorithm can dictate, it can discriminate just yeah. as well. And yeah. I think that's a problem too. Audrey, now we get to the fun part, the super informal part where Sean, will go, uh, Sean and I will go back and forth, ask you some questions. You'll have to reveal a bit about yourself and maybe your pop culture interests. So um, okay. the, the album, the artist, or the song that you've been listening to lately? Uh, it's a couple months old now, but I can't get enough of Janelle Monae's Dirty Computer. I, you know what? I saved it the other day on Spotify. I haven't given it a listen yet. So now I'm, now I'm inspired to go give the whole album a listen. All right. So um, next question. What is your most irrational fear? Uh, I am irrationally afraid of snakes. Like I, I have, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm like, again, like the rational mind knows it's no big deal. Like I have a hard time with the National Geographic Instagram feed because every once in a while without warning there's a snake and I I can't handle it at all. <laughs> I once made my two-year-old our cat brought in a garter snake and I once made my two-year-old take the snake back outside. I was I mean I was assuring him like it's not gonna hurt you or bite you it's not poisonous at all. <laughs> I just can't deal with it and I know you're too and I have faith in you. Oh, that boy. is my one that is my one phobia. I stepped on a snake nest when I was a kid. Yeah, I know, right? You'll be shaking thinking about that one for a long time. And my grandpa, because my grandpa was a compassionate man, he understood that the thing that a, a kid who's having like a stress reaction to the garter snakes that are under his bare feet at that moment, he decided that firing off his shotgun a bunch of times was going to solve the problem. So <laughs> that is how I responded to that problem. So, Wow. Oh, boy. All right. Um, I'm, I'm taking this one from Sean. He caught me off guard with a previous guest, and he asked about um, what is the, the childhood toy that you have, like, the most vivid memory of? Oh, actually, I have one um, sitting on my desk right now, and that's the Speak and Spell. Mm. I loved the speak and spell and it is such a Skinner little teaching machine. <laughs> I, was, I was waiting for you right? to say that. <laughs> yeah, it is, you know, and that flat monotone voice. I've since studied, like it's, it's, it's actually has a fascinating history, just the development of that voice technology and Texas Instruments decision to sort of build the speak and spell is, is, is a pretty, it's a pretty interesting piece of, of technology history. I would suppose the other one, which is also sitting here, is um, my brother played a lot of G.I. Joes with action figures, and he always made me play the, with the Cobra figures, and he had, like, six Cobras and, like, you know, 800,000 G.I. Joes. <laughs> and so um, I, I now collect um, G.I. or Cobra. I collect Cobra action figures, but they're, um, they're, they're, they're broken at the moment, and I think if you're a kid of a certain age, you know that it takes a little rubber band to 
reconnect their torso yes. um, back to their I, leg. And so that's, I, a, that's a work project. Actually, it's sitting on my desk to reassemble the Baroness. I think I, I think I responded to your yes, uh, you did. Instagram yes. account. That is, that was such a skill. I worked so hard to be good at that skill when I was younger, and people in the neighborhood would bring me exactly. them for like. Surgery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's some great memories. If you want to very quickly give us, um, share with the listeners, where can they read more about your work and when might they expect this new book to be? Sure. Um, you, I, you can find me at uh, audreywaters.com, right? Own my own domain, uh, hackeducation.com. Um, and I'm not sure the publication date of the book yet. Uh, my draft is due in April. So I'm guessing probably still about a year out. Audrey, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank I you can't for wait, having me. Yeah, to get this story out there and get people thinking about these ideas and reflecting on their practice. So thanks again. And maybe we can do a follow-up once, uh, once the book that. drops as well. <laughs> I'd love that. Thank you, Audrey. All right, bye, everyone. So We've Been Thinking is brought to you by EdTech Teacher. Join us this November at the EdTech Teacher Boston Summit. Learn more at ettsummit.org.